From far beyond the galaxies, I've journeyed to this place to study the behavior patterns of the human race. And I find them highly illogical. Welcome to a Lanyap episode of the Swampflix podcast. My name is Brandon Lede. And I am Boomer. And we are recording again across state lines. But this time we're actually going backwards in time and into outer space to talk about one of Boomer's favorite movies. Yeah, to a time before I was born. But also into the 23rd century, into the future. It's a very confusing loop-de-loop we're doing. Time is a fixed loop, you know. It's like the scene where, uh, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves and spoil it, but some glasses are sold. And they're like, hmm, was that a gift from so-and-so? And it's like, yes, that's the beauty of it. It will be again. Well, I'm, I'm afraid I don't have the qualifications to fully make this a Star Trek podcast, which I feel like would make you very happy. But this is a good like half measure to get us in that direction, at least. Yeah, I don't know if it would make me happy, but it would definitely uh, fulfill my destiny. But before we get into the movie we picked today, I know that your internet went out for a few days this week. So this may be a strange question to ask, but have you had time or the ability to watch other movies since the last time we talked? Yeah, it was not out for as long as they warned me it was going to be out for because I successfully waged a browbeating campaign against AT&T customer service. But one of the things that I did watch during that interim was Passion Fish from 1992, directed by John Sayles and written by him as well. Have you ever seen it? I've never heard of that. It made me pretty homesick, I'm going to be honest. Uh, Mary McDonnell, who is known to sci-fi fans who might just be tuning into this podcast because of what movie we're talking about today, as President Laura Roslin from the 2003 reboot of Battlestar Galactica, but also from many other things, including... Passion Fish, uh, for one, but also, you know, she's Donnie Darko's mom. I think that she won her Oscar for Dances with Wolves. And I also love her in the classic Beloved Sneakers, starring Robert Redford. In this movie, Mary McDonnell plays a New York soap opera actress from Louisiana who is paralyzed from the waist down after a car accident, and she goes back home to the house on Lake Arthur that was left behind by her now deceased parents. And of course, it's very much up my alley. It's a woman on the verge movie because uh, it's about <laughs> Mary McDonnell struggling with the fact that she's not going to be a star anymore. Not that you know being a soap opera actress ever made her a star necessarily. Uh, and she initially feuds with every single nurse that they send for home caretaking until they send Alfre Woodard, which for those uh, fans who are once again only joining us because of the topic of this podcast episode, the movie we're talking about, Alfre Woodard is probably best known to Star Trek fans as Lily Sloan from Star Trek First Contact. She comes to the home of May Alice, Mary McDonald's character, which is somewhere in Jefferson Davis Parish. They never are very specific and you would think it being 1992, it sounds very much like a movie that your mom rented in the early 90s about like the power of women's friendship and rehabilitation, etc. And uh, you'd be right, it is all of those things, but I loved it. Um, <laughs> it is all of those things and more, because you've got two really great powerhouse actresses in these leading roles. 
And I, I don't know, I assume it had not yet become such a cottage industry to make those kinds of films for that audience. But it sort of seems to predate a lot of the tropes of the bitter person and recovery narrative. That sounds interesting. I, I mean, I know you were saying like, there's a type of like early 90s, like sun dappled yeah. uh, women <laughs> bonding in unusual circumstances, like vibe that's playing with. I feel like I learned my lesson when we watched fried green tomatoes earlier this year to not underestimate that genre. Like it can really punch through in like unexpectedly like sincere ways and sometimes over the top ways. Yeah. Of fried green tomatoes, but it would be a really great double feature with fried green tomatoes. Cause fried green tomatoes is explicitly a movie that I remember my mother renting somewhere in 1992 or 93 shortly after it came out and watching. And whenever I was telling one of my dear friends who lives out in California that I had watched Passion Fish and it made me homesick. Because, I mean, it's all bayous and bald cypresses and Spanish moss. And, I mean, it's, you know, it's got everything that makes you want to go home to Louisiana. I sent her a link to the trailer and she was telling me, oh, she's like, I'm pretty sure that my mom must have rented this movie. Or she said, this is very familiar to me. And I was like, yeah, very much as a mom early 90s rental uh, so it wouldn't shock me if that was the case well um you mentioned a movie that was set in louisiana um i actually saw something with an austin connection since the last time we talked um i believe i've sent you this person's instagram account recently or before uh his name's evan perchell uh he has this instagram project called ask anybody and it's sort of a archival project that is sort of preserving vintage gay porn from the seventies and eighties. Um, and he's turned that project into a film. He spliced together 125 different hardcore gay films from the golden era into the one narrative. It was actually reminding me of the stuff we talked about last time, how they do those pre-show roles for, the Alamo draft house. And I believe he's either done that before for the draft house or for some other theater. Um, and I, I know he's done some programming for draft house as well, but in this case, it's like a feature length narrative in that same collage style. And what he did was create this like tapestry narrative where you follow kind of like a gay male archetype from like waking up in the morning and having like a loosely weirdly connected wet dream to like getting up, brushing his teeth and then cruising through different sort of spots. Uh, I mean, most of the films are in San Francisco or in New York, but you know, he goes to the docks, he goes to movie theaters, he goes to a bathhouse. And when I say he, like it's a sort of amalgamated person. It's like a bunch of different clips of different gay male archetypes doing the same activities. And then it sort of ends at this crescendo at like a party where all these different party scenes are spliced together from different movies and ends up being this like giant celebration so it's kind of playing with that like idea that like vintage pornography is like kind of documentary. The fact that a lot of that stuff was like shot on the streets without permits and like, you know, people were just sort of dressed how they dress in real life because those movies didn't have a budget for costuming or anything. So you're kind of seeing people how they were and like out in the real world at the time. And he's also playing with the idea that there was like a queer cinema before what we were told is where it started. Like we're kind of told like in the nineties is when, you know, Todd Haynes and Greg Araki and other people sort of like invented a new queer cinema and that there really wasn't an identity for that beforehand. 
And his argument kind of is, well, we had that. It was just X-rated. Uh, and that's how those movies got funding. So, you know, it's like a really fun movie because it's incredibly lewd. Like, I would say probably 75% of the footage involves blowjobs. It gets even looter than that. There's like a double fisting at one point that like really comes out of nowhere. But it's also got this sort of like academic lens to it as well. And it's also really playful. There's like these sort of celebrity cameos, celebrity in quotations. Like it's like Gene Simmons or Mallory Monroe will show up out of nowhere. Cause like there's kind of these dragon personator characters that drift through the scene. And it's just like, honestly, one of the wildest things I've seen all year. I watched it through this film festival in Boston called Wicked Queer. And the movie's hosted online through there, I think, through this Sunday. I definitely recommend it if any of that sounds at all interesting to you. So you're going to like this. I've met Evan. Oh, cool. He actually has recently started an Ask Anybody podcast. I listened to the first two episodes. Tyler, who was on that podcast. I've known Tyler for a little while. He was at one point in a band with both Zachary Nash, who was one of the first friends that I made here in Austin, as well as uh, Nikki Reyes, who is also known as Nikki Christmas. They're all musicians or were all at one point involved in a band called the Mirandis. And of course, Nikki Reyes is my former roommate of the last three years. So I have met Evan out and about. I believe uh, that I first met him whenever I met up with him and Tyler and another friend of theirs to see Tammy and the T-Rex at Weird Wednesday at the Alamo Draft House on South Lamar. So I have not yet listened to their podcast. I have not seen the film, but I have met Evan. I never met Evan in person. I've just known him from the internet over the years. And he's always had this like depth of uh, knowledge about, you know, we, we talk about a lot of genre movies and like, B films and stuff on on this website and this podcast. And I feel like we're only scratching the surface of like what he knows about that stuff. Like his handle of like obscure titles is way deeper than mine. And it's been fascinating to watch him fall down this very particular rabbit hole uh, (laughs) over the past few years. And it's all been great. The Instagram account's great. The podcast is off to a good start and the, the movie's great too. Definitely recommend supporting it while it's out there. I am from what on your calendar would be the late 23rd century. I've come back in time to bring two humpback whales with me in an attempt to repopulate the species. Well, why didn't you just say so? I mean, why all the coy disguises? So the movie that we're talking about tonight is the 1986 science fiction classic Star Trek IV The Voyage Home, starring and directed by Leonard Nimoy, and also uh, William Shatner is there, as well as the rest of the cast. Uh, It's a movie in which Kirk and company go back in time to San Francisco in 1986 to rescue two humpback whales named George and Gracie in order to bring them back to the quote-unquote present of the 23rd century in order to talk to a space probe that is threatening to destroy the Earth seemingly accidentally because uh, there are no humpback whales to respond to it. So we get to see Kirk and company as temporal fish out of water and also 
uh, sort of explore the San Francisco of 1986 through the eyes of the intrepid Starfleet officers that we have come to know and perhaps love over the years. Very different from the last time we talked about Star Trek when we did Wrath of Khan, which was a much more serious and like complicated plot than uh, this one. Yeah, it's definitely the most lighthearted of all of the Star Trek films. It is a favorite of a friend of mine who actually gave me my copy, or my Blu-ray copy. I have my childhood VHS copy still as well, but gave me the Blu-ray copy (laughs) several years ago for Christmas, uh, which was very kind of him, although I think we might have talked about this before. At the time, I didn't have anything that would play (laughs) that form of media. So I, I do now, and I was glad to finally be able to see it full screen in glorious digital blu-ray perfection for the first time a couple of weeks ago after having it live inside of my head complete with vhs artifacts from all of the watchings of it in my childhood i think that this is notably the only star trek film in which no one dies i think that that's one of its like trivia pieces as well as the fact that no one really fires a weapon at another person unlike all of the others as well yeah, I can only think of Chekhov like trying to shoot his phaser at uh, a few Navy men on a ship, and uh, it just doesn't work. Like the movie won't allow him to commit an act of violence because that's just not the vibe. Yeah, the only time that a phaser works in this movie is when Kirk uses it to weld the door at the hospital shut so that they can get Chekhov out of there. So I've been a fan of this movie for a long time. You know, Star Trek really kind of came into my life full force in 1996 during like the 30th anniversary push. Uh, and I was nine years old, and it really just caught me right at the right time to become a, to put it nicely, lifelong obsession. But you are <laughs> not really super familiar with it. It's not necessarily something, we've talked before, that it's kind of like your Star Trek experience is mostly limited to like next generation reruns and intermittent, like, you know, your dad taking you to the, the movies whenever one came out, right? Yeah, that's accurate. And I thought I had seen this one before, but I, I obviously had not. I was, must have been confusing it with something else. Did you love it? I was surprised both by how fun it is. It it really is just like a deliciously fun comedy. And just also how well-beloved it is by Star Trek people. Like this one's commonly, I mean, it's called A Voyage Home, right? But it's referred to as the one with the whales. Yeah. It's like its unofficial title. And you hear that over the years and you kind of think like, well, this one's kind of a joke. Like it's like one that people push aside like oh it's it's just the one with the whales it's like this goofy sort of anomaly within the series but when you talk to star trek people about it they really love this movie we all love it (laughs) (laughs) i was shocked by that because it's one of those nerdums like you know kind of like horror and stuff like that where people take it like too seriously sometimes and they're very nitpicky Mm -hmm. and this movie's so unashamedly goofy like, this is Leonard Nimoy in his, like, uh, three men in a baby mode. Like, he's going for pure comedy in tone. And it really just is charming throughout. I was just really charmed by it and surprised by how little, like, fanboy derision it actually has in the roar. Like, most people have warm feelings for it, uh, which o- only made it more charming in retrospect. Yeah, Star Trek is a fandom that's pretty weird because... On the one hand, it is the fandom that's centered around the one really long-running franchise that is explicitly, implicitly, and importantly, very social justice-oriented. Like, it's very much about 
a progressive future and always has been explicitly so to the point that I'm, you know, everybody's heard the story about Nichelle Nichols meeting Martin Luther King and him telling her to stay on the show because she was basically one of the only black women in the sixties, if not the only one on television who was not a maid for a franchise that is that socially conscious, it does have a really big gatekeeping problem. And the fact that there are so many different flavors of Star Trek has really caused there to be lots of internal conflict regarding which one is the best, what's the best, are any of them even that good? Are they all terrible? Is only one of them that good? And the one thing that seems to unify everyone is everybody loves Star Trek Four. That is so funny. I mean, the jokes are just solid, I think is probably part of it. But you would think even the environmentalist bent, I know you're saying like politics have always been in the show's DNA, but like the specificity of the environmentalism in here feels like it might play a little hokey for people. It's very set in its time. I mean, there's a movie about pollution and overfishing on whales. It's very explicit about that and blatant. Right. Um, and I guess that's one of those issues where no one's going to be cheering for the extinction of whales. So maybe it's not going to turn people off. <laughs> Got to nuke something. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but you think like some people would like bristle at how corny that is. But uh, I, I just really am not getting the sense that anybody has any malice towards this f- movie. It was just a very pleasant watch. I could see why this is like a comfort watch for a lot of people. A couple of things to bear in mind about it. Gene Roddenberry loves ocean mammals. If you take a look at the earliest designs of the Enterprise-D, which was the ship in the 1987 Star Trek The Next Generation show, there are specifically large sections of the ship that are devoted to what they call cetacean ops, which basically Roddenberry had this idea that whales and dolphins would be really instrumental in space travel because... (laughs) They, like bumblebees, are used to navigating a three-dimensional space, which, I mean, I guess that makes sense if it's the 80s and you're Gene Roddenberry. In reality, it's, it, it kind of falls flat when you think about it too hard. But, you know, that came out in 87, and on the VHS release of Star Trek IV, there is an advertisement for the pilot episode of Next Generation, and Next Generation itself advertised the VHS release during its first season run. So there is like a franchise um, synchronicity going on there, both with this is the 80s and this is the Star Trek like product that we have, and also gosh darn, aren't whales just the best? (laughs) It is a little hokey, I think, because it is very, I mean, save the whales. You grew up in like South Louisiana, like I did, where like save the whales wasn't even really a phrase that you heard in earnest ever. It was always something that was used to mock those hippies and the things that they care about. Yeah. Whale saving and tree hugging. So it is shocking that this one managed to be something that even like my parents enjoyed to the point where you know they had purchased this tape so that when I was a kid, whenever I was like sick in kindergarten, I would be like, "Can I just watch the whale movie?" You know, that was one of the things that we had. It is also important to note that as of 2016, humpback whales are no longer on the endangered species list. I'm sure there are a lot of Star Trek fans out there who want to give that credit solely to Star Trek for raising awareness, but it was, <laughs> Voyage Home was made during a time in which there were 
new laws being passed about whaling, both nationally and internationally, that did help that species bounce back. But you know, we'll take the we'll take the credit for it too. You know, it is kind of funny to see like the the crew on the Enterprise are like, or I guess the Enterprise has been exploded, but the Enterprise crew are these like renegades and terrorists who are like saving the whales from the like backwards times that we live in contemporarily. So it's really interesting that you mentioned terrorism, which is probably not a great phrase that you ever really want to hear. But whenever I was gathering a little bit of Star Trek news before this podcast to talk about, I did want to tell you that there has been some shifting around in the current Star Trek fandom. Most notably, we have a release date for Star Trek Discovery Season 3. There was also the release of the new sort of more adult animated series called Lower Decks, which is about a crew of a Starfleet ship that sort of manages or gets involved in what they call second contact, the contact that follows the first contact. But two of the biggest Star Trek YouTube channels There's one run by Steve Shives uh, that has a 107,000 subscriber count, and Trexpertise, which has a 102,000 subscriber count, both released discussions about terrorism within Star Trek within the past two weeks, bearing in mind that the official Star Trek channel itself only has 86.2 thousand subscribers. Steve Shives released his video (laughs) earlier today, um, and Trexpertise is released about two weeks ago, and it was the second part of their sort of discussion of terrorism as a political tool in Star Trek and who uses it and who's not using it and who's on what side and sort of the uh, value of subversive action in the face of fascism writ large across the like Star Trek continuity. So uh, you're not wrong that Kirk and company are kind of like eco-terrorists in this one. They're not bombing anything, but they are all about saving the whales it's a opposition to what was seen as like you know i guess reagan era greed is like what they're playing that against is like the audience sides with them for being active but like nobody wants to see the whales extinct you know like we're on their side (laughs) but it also makes explicit something that i think runs throughout the show which is like the reason the show is like candy for the soul is that it's this vision of the future where we've like figured out all these speed bumps that should be beyond us now like we should be like past all these like idiotic roadblocks to like enlightenment and what this movie does is like goes back in time and shows those in action it's like everyone is like you know a bunch of like cursing rude bus punks yeah there's the punk on the bus who's playing like this really funny parody of like sex pistols type punk music and the music has no political ideology. We're like, in real life, punk is or should be like left politics, anarcho organizational music. But um, there is like that snotty suburban contingent um, that if you're going to like boil it down to a cartoon, which is what that was. So yeah, the world's just this like rude, backwards, really just like primitive society <laughs> that like uh, yeah. hasn't changed much since. But yeah, usually. The show is a fantasy where we've gotten past that, and it's really funny to go see them go back in time and show like the contrast of like what we're aspiring to versus what we have now. Yeah, my favorite scene that addresses that is McCoy in the hospital, just absolutely being horrified by what was then cutting-edge contemporary medical science. 
The scene where he provides that woman with a pill that regrows her kidney after he is shocked and horrified that she's undergoing dialysis is a fan favorite. I mean, everybody loves this movie and everybody loves McCoy in this movie, but it also gives every character kind of a moment to shine in a way that both the original series and some of the films really didn't. You, you know, you've still got your big duo of Kirk and Spock, but McCoy has his moments. Scotty has his fun scene where he gets to, you know, have his hello computer moment um, where he <laughs> goes to the place that's creating the thing. And, you know, Sulu gets the helicopter scene and, you know, uh Uhura has the scene where she's aboard the ship and she and Chekhov are both in that scene where they're questioning people about how to get to the nuclear vessels in Alameda. It's more of an ensemble piece than the films always get to be, especially right on the heels of Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock, which one of the things that I actually really don't like about that one is Uhura is completely sidelined in Search for Spock. They basically leave her behind pretty early on, and then she just shows up at the end. So coming right on the heels of that one, which is a much more separated and Shatner-heavy vehicle, especially since Spock is you know not played by Leonard Nimoy for most of that, this gets the entire cast back together, gives everybody a moment to shine, everybody has their comedic moments, and it's just narratively a perfectly written film. Well, I wonder if that's part of the reason why it's such a fondly remembered movie is like, this is a film that obviously loves all of these characters and like invests time to give them at least a gag a piece where they like it to shine. So yeah, maybe that's part of why people fondly remember it because if you're watching these people at this point, they're like so old. <laughs> like in Wrath of Khan, they were already saying like, I'm too old for this shit. Right. So to see them like still continuing on in these like space adventures you only do that because the characters are beloved by people and they want to see more yeah so if the movie's going to take that care with them like maybe that's the reason why it's such a like beloved property within the larger franchise wait till i make you watch star trek 6 which has a scene where scotty tackles an assassin (laughs) then you'll really have a hoot What did you think about that um, weird scene where they're going through the time warp and everybody's faces kind of float out a little bit? I'd like to hear your thoughts on that. I love that just as like a, you know, VHS aesthetic uh, retro vibe. It reminded me of that vaporwave internet aesthetic that went around a few years ago. Just really odd use of CGI in a way that feels like the rules hadn't really been set in stone on how to use that properly yet. So they actually achieved like this sort of absurd illustration of what time travel is in this like abstract way. It's very corny, but it's great. Yeah. It's corny, but great is a good way to put it. Apparently they were trying to do something beyond the abilities of computer generated imagery at the time. So whenever it didn't work, they were just like, well, let's just kind of, make this sort of a dream sequence and slap it in here, which really goes to show you how uh, sort of economical Nimoy is as a director as well. I don't think that there's a frame of this movie that's wasted. I don't think there's a frame of this movie that doesn't have the Golden Gate Bridge in it. Um, I don't know if that's the same thing. It's in it all the time. Yeah. (laughs) That was like one of the weirder, like visual details I thought was just like, no matter where they are in the city, they're trying to get that bridge in the shot 
Um, even in the scenes that are set in the 23rd century, uh, they're really making sure that bridge is up front and center. You know, for whatever reason, San Francisco is really an important part of Star Trek history because it is the location where Starfleet Academy and Starfleet headquarters are. So it's possible that they place the film in 86 San Francisco rather than like 86 New York or 86 LA or even like 86 Chicago, simply because it has that connection to where they are in the future. So they could draw that visual line between the most iconic piece of architecture, or I guess more technically infrastructure in San Francisco in both the past and the present as a way to make something that could potentially destroy the world long, long, long after all of the viewers would be very, very dead to give it like some meaning (laughs) by, you know, making that connection between the golden gate of yesterday and the golden gate of tomorrow, theoretically, but it is uh, a little bit overused. I don't know. I think it becomes like kind of a joke after a while. Like it's so absurd how present it is that like, at a certain point, you kind of roll your eyes a little bit like, oh, we're back here again. But it pushes past that to reach its own kind of absurd comical quality. Like I was like laughing. I was like, oh, there it is again. It was great. Well, I actually do have a question, too, about San Francisco. I don't know if George Takai was out at the time that this was made. He was not. He was not. Mm-hmm. So there's like a part where they're landing in San Francisco for the first time and he gets his own like solo shot to the camera where he's like really excited to be there that I was not sure if it was a gay joke because that was like a gay culture mecca in America at the time. No, it, as far as I know, is not. Now, George Takei was not out until, like, into my adulthood. I want to say at least, let's see here, I want to say probably 2005, 2006. So my early adulthood, late teenage years is when he came out. He is not originally from... San Francisco. Uh, George Takei was born in LA. So I don't know if necessarily that was. I do know that his castmates knew. So whenever I was nine years old, (laughs) I went to a Star Trek convention. My mother took me and the guest of honor was George Takei. This would have been 1996. And he talked about the pranks that Bill, Bill being William Shatner, would play on him on set and how some of them were kind of cruel. And we do know that of the former castmates of Star Trek, Shatner was the only person that Takei did not invite to his wedding to Brad Altman. And I have seen some of the outtakes where you can see like Shatner playing pranks. And one of them is that he slips sort of like a nudie pinup of a woman into like the viewing goggles that Sulu or George Takei's character was using on the helmsman con station, which makes me wonder how much uh, homophobic pranking Takei was subject to by Shatner at that time. But I don't believe that specifically this line was meant to do that unless it was just kind of like a nod and a wink to the friends of Dorothy who kind of already knew. Uh, I do have one more question that's like more controversial, I think, than the last one I asked, which was slightly controversial. (laughs) But uh, okay, let me lay this on you. Do you think this movie would be possible if it wasn't a Star Trek film? Like, 
Do you think you can make this exact same movie with alien characters in modern day San Francisco and have it be just as successful? I guess the reason I'm asking that is like, there is a bit of business at the uh, front and end of the film that I don't particularly care about as someone who's just dropping in. Like there's about 40 minutes of lead up and about maybe 15 minutes of denouement after the, uh, the whales are repopulated in the future. It's basically like MCU style, like franchise filmmaking where you have to like tie up the loose ends from the last movie and they have to sort of set up the (laughs) loose ends to tie up for the next one. So I'm wondering like, it seems like a double-edged sword. Like you kind of need these characters to be familiar for the jokes to be funny. But at the same time, there's like so much that's kind of weighing it down where like, I really wanted to get to the good stuff. Like I really wanted to get to modern San Francisco for the first like half an hour at least. Hmm, That's a good question. I think that the success of like back to the future and its sequels and other films that like ripped it off or took inspiration from it to be polite shows that there is just in general an audience for what tv tropes calls the fish out of temporal water like the fish out of water is a story that's just like oh here's a person a stranger in a strange land who doesn't really grasp the implications or the all of the idioms or the you know the world that they're thrust into and you kind of see that across different genres i mean when you get down to it, the Hugh Jackman, Meg Ryan vehicle, Caden uh, Leopold, is essentially a fish out of temporal water situation. But I don't know. Because one of the things that you would not know if you weren't familiar with Star Trek is that the accent that Walter Koenig is doing is supposed to be a Russian accent. So that when he goes up to <laughs> the police officer in you know, 1986 San Francisco during a time when the USSR still existed, asking where the nuclear vessels are definitely like raises some eyebrows. I don't, hmm. I'm going to say yes, but it would not be the same movie. I think that if you take this movie and you get rid of the familiarity with the Star Trek characters and you just make it about aliens landing during that time period and just being regular, fish out of water what you've got is earth girls are easy yep (laughs) so i'm gonna say that yes you can do it and it would be great (laughs) well i'll at least say uh maybe to backpedal any complaints i had um i do think this is much funnier and more successful than back to the future that'll be my hot take for this episode Ooh, that's a hot that's (laughs) spicy i don't like that movie (laughs) it definitely is a film that you can totally understand why it was very popular and why so it was so formative to so many people's understanding of like the language of film and what they came to like, but it's ongoing domination of its particular area of the pop culture discourse landscape is exhausting. Oh yeah. It has a much bigger cultural footprint than it deserves. I would say it's the nicest way to put it. Okay. So I think this movie's funnier than that movie, which is part of it. So I guess I also just want to know, like, if you have favorite bits from this movie, like if there are any particular gags that are funnier or stand out to you. My favorite bits, there's, it's definitely the Scotty and the 1980s computer. I love Spock mind melding with the whales. Oh, him jumping in the fish tank. It really is like a great sight gag. That was one of my favorite moments as well. I love his interaction with McCoy when they're still on Vulcan and have not yet actually started the movie where 
McCoy, Bones is just like, hey, let's, I mean, you died. Do you, do you want to talk about it? And Spock's like, I mean, you haven't died, so <laughs> there's really no point. We don't have a common frame of reference. <laughs> and McCoy is just like, I have to die to you know discuss your insights on death? I think that is, to me, the most iconic Bones line in the entire franchise, even more than <laughs> I'm a doctor, not a blank, which was like his catchphrase on the original show. I have to die to discuss your insights on death is like such a great exasperated McCoy line. <laughs> I love all of the Starfleet officers really struggling to grasp the concept of currency because Star Trek takes place in a post-scarcity socialist utopia of the future. Uh, so them having to get change to ride the bus or pay for pizza or just get across the bridge to Alameda is such a hilarious concept to me that they're like, we don't understand money. We'll just sell, we'll sell these glasses. A hundred dollars. Is that a lot? <laughs> How much does a banana really cost, Michael? You know, there is something about that that I really enjoy. As far as like non-comedic bits, the point where Sarek comes in, Spock's father at the beginning of the film, to basically read the Klingon ambassador for filth is a favorite moment of mine as well. And his sort of I'm proud of you son moment at the end, uh, which is of course very subdued because they are Vulcans and that is their culture. But it's actually pretty heartwarming when you really know that like the backstory that Spock was rebellious and joined Starfleet against his father's wishes, and now his father has finally come to respect both him and his human comrades, which is actually kind of touching. Everybody loves the punk on the bus. Kirk Thatcher, who was, I think, a production assistant on the film, once wrote, maybe within the past five years, you know, I could win the Nobel Peace Prize, and my tombstone will still say punk on bus from star trek 4 because um, that is what he is most remembered for and i just love jillian taylor not understanding kirk at all and just being like yeah i'll go along with this especially when kirk is like oh yeah he took too much lds in the 60s and she's just kind of she doesn't even call him out on the fact that he's talking about the church of latter-day saints instead of acid like that's how out of touch he is what about you? What did what were some of the bits that you really liked? Well, I will say that just Jillian in general, her name's Jillian, right? Yeah. She was just super charming. Yeah, her like gameness, the way she's just like so amused by how odd these two men are is great. But in general, I would say it's not a surprise that Spock gets most of the best humor in the film. Spock learning how to curse, like when to say the hell uh, in a proper context is really funny. Uh, the sight gag of him swimming at the whales had me howling. Actually, the funniest bit maybe is one of the more expected ones, but like him and Shatner going back and forth about whether or not they like Italian. Yeah. Like had a very like Abin Costello kind of like vaudevillian rhythm to it that was just way funnier than it had any right to be. I think that was the turning point for me where I was like, I went from amused to being like, wow, this really is just like comedically solid. Yeah. It's not really shocking that Spock has like the best comes off the best in this film because Nimoy was in the director's chair, but I think he really did like milk that character for all the hilarity he could put out. E yeah. Even just him covering his eyebrows to hide the fact that he's an alien. 
which you know San Francisco after Divine had been there, um, <laughs> those eyebrows would not have uh, turned any heads. Like he could have just walked down the street as normal. But you know, covering up the fact that he was alien by uh, hiding his eyebrows under a bandana, which is like a funny gag as well. He does look like he has been ejected from the world's saddest dojo for most of this movie when he's wearing <laughs> that part of his torn robe across uh, his forehead uh, and ears. You know, people who are listening may already know this, but, you know, whenever they killed Spock at the end of Wrath of Khan, the only way that they could get Nimoy back was if they let him direct Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock, which is... I think we might have discussed a little bit already a movie in which not very much happens for a really long time of the even of the odd numbered Star Trek movies. It's not bad, you know, in comparison to like the final frontier, which is the fifth one, which is, you know, we'll cut, we'll circle back around on that in a second, but they enjoyed it so much. And it ended up being such a success that they were like, okay, you can direct the fourth one. But then that caused Shatner to flex his, muscles and <laughs> demand that he be allowed to direct Star Trek V, The Final Frontier, which was unequivocally the worst of all the Star Trek films. That one can be summarized as Kirk fights God and wins, which really <laughs> gives you some insight into Shatner's mindset. The only thing I can think of that is a positive product of The Final Frontier is on the laser disc when it was released there was sort of a featurette in which shatner was interviewed near the mountain that he is climbing at the beginning of final frontier and he he says things like captain clerk is climbing a mountain why is he climbing a mountain he wants to love that mountain he wants to hug that mountain <laughs> these climbers with their lives bodies and it was remixed by a youtube channel called fall on your sword what they call shatner of the mount in which they do a remix of shatner's mountain speech definitely worth checking out and honestly doesn't sound that different from shatner and nimoy's respective careers as pop singers where they mostly just sort of mumbled over backing tracks in in character uh which i, I pulled some clips from Nimoy's own music for this episode. Oh boy. You know, William Shatner's Common People is a work of art, though. I, I don't know if uh, Nimoy's Proud Mary tops it in any way, but it, it is ridiculous in its own way as well. That was something I spent too much time listening to this week. Oh, Leonard Nimoy's best track is The Ballad of Bilbo Baggins, though, by like a long shot. <laughs> oh, yeah, you love Leonard Nimoy? Name five of his albums. I'm sorry. <laughs> 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 one last thing i did pull out my old vhs to confirm this the film uh both in its original release and in a short clip that appears at the beginning of at least my vhs release and i think several others and i believe there's even a blurb on all future releases of it was dedicated to the crew of the challenger that was on the version I watched as well. It's sort of a weird, uh, fascinating reciprocity of science fiction and science fact that the first space shuttle was named the Enterprise as the result of a letter-writing campaign whenever the first space shuttle was being built. Uh, the first one being the Enterprise, the second one being the Columbia, which itself um, later fell victim to tragedy. 
but it is a, a touching thing. May we never forget them, even now that it's been you know, 34 years, the sacrifice that they made in order to further knowledge of science that unfortunately humanity has uh, seemed and found fit to stop paying attention to. But I feel like we should you know, salute them and, and thank them for uh, the sacrifice they made in the name of knowledge. Yeah, it was like a kind of solemn way to start a comedy, but uh, it also had kind of a playful message to it as well. It was like, may your souls continue on to the 23rd century and beyond or something like that, uh, which I feel like, you know, if you're a, a NASA employee, it's a sentiment that uh, you're probably nerdy enough to have appreciated. Um, so it seemed like a really like moment of solidarity for science minded people. I don't know. It felt genuine to me. There's a lot of overlap between um, people who went into astronomy and its associated science fields as a result of Star Trek. Mae Jemison, who was actually the first black woman in space, even shows up in an episode of Star Trek The Next Generation playing like a transporter chief because she was inspired by Uhura as a child. So it's definitely done good work, whether or not people actually enjoy Star Trek for years to come or not, which, uh, you know, it is a pretty nerdy thing to care about, but it's done good work in getting people interested in STEM and furthering the cause of science, in addition to furthering, you know, all of the social causes that it has been party to and taken part in. So that's my soapbox about Star Trek that I'll get off of. Well, uh, next week on the show, James picked the topic and he asked us to pick our all-time favorite movie endings, favorite ending to a film. Which me, him, and Brittany all picked things that have like nothing to do with each other. So it'll be kind of a grab bag episode. Because it's kind of a hard question to answer. I don't even know if you... Do you have like a thing that like jumped out at you when you heard that? It took me a minute. I don't know. Let's see. Great endings. Are you going to tell me what, what you decided to talk about so far? Is that a spoiler at this point? Uh, he picked being there. That was kind of the spark of the conversation. Mm. Uh, the rest were kind of all over the place. I kind of feel weird saying this. Because even though, as we were talking about before, a lot of the current political climate is not news to you or me, one of my all-time favorite films is something that is technically copaganda, which is Hot Fuzz. I've, I love Hot Fuzz. I like it more than you know the other movies and what they call the Cornetto trilogy. But when you get right down to it, I think that Hot Fuzz has a really great ending, except, you know, we have to be able to, I feel like I can't enjoy that film as apolitically and acritically as I used to. But it's got a great mystery reveal. So I think that's a good template for like what a good ending is. There's there's definitely like a great payoff to all the little clues that have been dropped along the way in that one. Yeah. And whether or not the uh, political implications of the larger setting are hold up. I think that's a good example. Thank you. Uh, the thing that I love about Hot Fuzz is... For me, mystery and comedy at least somewhat exist in the same rhetorical space in the mind, where there's planting and payoff with the revelation of clues and then the solution to a mystery, and jokes have the same format, where you get a little bit of information and a little bit of information and then a punchline, that mysteries and comedies kind of occupy that same space. And Hot Fuzz does what a lot of mysteries aren't even successful in doing, 
which is that Simon Pegg's uh, Sergeant Angel character actually figures out a solution to the mystery that fits all of the clues that both he as a character and we as the audience have seen play out, but he's still wrong. And (laughs) then we get the actual revelation. So I think that that is one of the reasons that I think of that as one of my favorite endings is because it has that twist where it's like, oh, we've given you all this information and here's a perfectly sound explanation, but it's not what actually happened. Well, uh, we'll be back in a, in a week with another episode. Talk about some great movie punchlines. Bye, everybody. Hey. Am I the you before? The you you were when your world was new? Or am I the you that you will be tomorrow? Through me, you see your future or your past. I know not which. For I come from that spark of light so far in space, your mind the distance could not comprehend.